You're listening to the Fresh Takes on Tech podcast, a show from the International Fresh Produce Association. This is a show for people interested in the intersection between technology and the produce and floral industries. Every week, we explore the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the industry. If you are interested in the innovations that create change, this is the place for you. Let's dive in. Welcome to Fresh Takes on Tech. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, and this is our first podcast of this season and the relaunch of the podcast. And we have a great guest that I can't wait to talk to today, Joel McCower. He's the founder of Green Biz Group. And um, Joel and I have known each other, I think, close to 27 years. Um, So it's really great to have him on the show and to talk about his work in sustainability. Welcome and good to have you, Joel. Thanks, Vani. It's been that long. That's amazing. I'm only 29, so I don't know how that worked out. (laughs) Okay, so let's start uh, with an introduction of yourself, your work, and the Green Biz Group. Sure. Well, I am a, a, a journalist and an entrepreneur, and I've spent my whole career, 40 plus years, starting companies. This is my third company, in, in the mostly in the event information and media and event space. Uh, and for the past 30 some years, I have been focusing at the intersection of business, sustainability, and technology, and innovation, and corporate practice and strategy. You know how the world's largest companies and lots of small, mid-sized ones as well are th- thinking about and integrating sustainability into their operations and, and aligning that with their core strategy and all of that. And my company, Green Biz Group, I'm the co-founder and chairman. We're about 50 people here in Oakland, California, and we produce a daily news and a daily. We have seven weekly free newsletters. We put on four big in-person events. I think, thankfully, back in person uh, as well as some virtual events uh, throughout the year. And then we have a membership group of sustainability executives from large companies, billion dollar plus revenue companies that we, again, post COVID bring together uh, multiple times a year for what we call peer-to-peer learning and what they tend to call group therapy. But this is a broad range of companies from food and ag to railroads, airlines, banks, tech companies, and, and so on. And so so I, it's been really interesting to sit at that middle uh, intersection and, and being able to listen to the conversations that companies are having. So you do focus a lot on the companies and what they're doing. They have tools and capabilities to solve a lot of the issues um, that we have around sustainability. Why do you think we don't have 100% of companies on board and practicing to the fullest extent? Well, in a word, change. We all have, (laughs) we like the idea of change. Uh, Doing it is actually harder. I like to say that when it comes to change, we love the noun and hate the verb. And, And so... This is, you know, companies uh, have other priorities, uh, particularly these days, your supply chain and talent acquisition and retention and all the usual things around products and services and quality and delivering and, you know, finance and cash flow, all, all the things that companies deal with. And sustainability is still, you know, on the list of the top five things that a CEO wants to think about on a given day, this falls to number seven or eight. And so it just doesn't rise to the top for enough companies 
Having said that, there are many companies for which it does that are that see this as a as a huge risk factor, frankly, and are dealing with that in in, in ways that go well beyond what most pe- the, the public generally sees. We can talk about this maybe, but you know most people out there assume that any company that's doing anything is ipso facto greenwashing, when in fact, actually the opposite is true, that companies tend to be walking more than they're talking. They're actually doing more than they're actually saying. And we can talk about why that's the case. But, you know, this, the idea of sustainability is compelling. You know, who wouldn't want to do the right thing for people on the planet while also aligning with, you know, profits and productivity. But, it's it's not so simple, and I know you know this, Vani. You've been in this field for a long time, but this is a these are very challenging things to do because they're simple things that companies do, and you know you can change out your light bulbs and, and tune your HVAC and things like that. Sort of no brainers because they pencil out financially pretty quickly. But the the harder things, the higher hanging fruit, if you will, is inordinately difficult to pick. And so companies are struggling with that. And because both change can be difficult, even when it's driven from the top. And the, as I said, the priorities uh, don't always line up with what's going on. I mean, think about what's happening right now in the world, you know, particularly with supply chains and caring about employees, customers and suppliers in Eastern Europe and, you know, still dealing with the pandemic and, and everything else. Unfortunately, this gets shunted to the side. I have a couple of questions from that. One, you mentioned about the perception of greenwashing and that a lot of times the public doesn't think that companies are really doing anything and they just assume anything they say isn't true. How did that public perception happen and, and why is that happening? Because I, I certainly see that as well. Well, I think early on it was it was the activist community, the Greenpeaces and others that that saw companies taking, you know, saying they were taking action and realizing that what they were doing either they either weren't doing what they were saying they were doing or they were just making sort of generally gauzy kinds of commitments and statements, but nothing, not so much to back it up, or they, they were dealing with some superficial things, you know, changing out light bulbs, but not the real problems where their their biggest impacts are. More recently, it's, you know, became political. And I think that's factored in, in terms of companies' willingness to do these things. But that's changing a lot now, because now a lot of this is being driven uh, by Wall Street, at least for big publicly traded companies and, and, and large uh, companies that are owned by uh, private equity firms. There's real metrics that you that people are measuring, so you have to show that what you're doing, right? Yeah, the, the metrics and those are difficult because they're not always consistent. Companies are being held accountable and, and being asked to provide more disclosure and transparency about their performance and their impacts. But still, even still, it gets harder to change in companies. You know, as I said a minute ago, it's, they, this doesn't always rise to the top. And so companies know they need to be able to talk the talk. And some of them you know, genuinely want to do the right thing, but they haven't, they may not even know what the right thing is. They may think that, okay, we buy, we're, we're buying green energy from our local utility. We've cut our waste significantly at our factory or headquarters. Uh, you know, we donate a nickel per widget sold to Ducks Unlimited every third week in April or, or whatever the, you know, we're the good guys. And ignoring the fact that probably 80 or 90% of their impacts are in their supply chain, which, you know, presents any number of challenges. And so, you know, there's still a lot of, despite decades of this and so many of us beating the drum and trying to educate the, the business community, there's still 
a lot of uh, myths and misunderstanding about what you even need to be doing. And again, that's changing a lot. There's a whole new generation of employees coming in who, are, who, who do get it. So it's all really exciting, but it's just not changing at the scale, scope, and speed we need. I mean, we saw recently the latest IPCC report, and we you know, get a little numb to those because they come out and they all have these dire warnings and code red for the planet and all of this. But you know, they become increasingly dire, and, and still we all sort of become numb to this. And it's sort of paralyzing for a lot of companies about what they really need to be doing and how much of a difference they can make. One of the things that I've seen in my career, and th this is definitely improving as well, but certainly early on, people would hire a sustainability officer and that person would be mid-level in the organization, you know, not report to the CEO, but be kind of mid-level. And they're like, okay, check, you know, we hired our sustainability officer. Now we're doing sustainability stuff. And it, it just didn't work very well, you know, and that person wasn't empowered and it didn't go through the whole organization. How are you seeing that, that change? Are those people getting more power and more influence? Is sustainability starting to really be a part of what everyone does? What's happening with that now? Yeah, you're right. I mean, for a long time, it was, you know, the sustainability person was seen as a, you know, off to the side, the, the tree hugger, the, the person who was going to come up and, you know, come along and make and things everyone. differently. It was like, uh -oh, you know, uh oh, here comes Vani, look busy, you know. And so that's changing a lot because there's still somebody and more and more people who have that sustainability title, sort of the quarterback, if you will, inside a company. But now it's being pushed out to facilities and operations and supply chain and finance and marketing and communications and government relations, investor relations and CFO and many other parts of the operation. And so it's less seen as a distraction or something off to the side. Again, because, you know, employees get this. Employees realize you can't just sort of talk the talk and have a little window dressing here. You really need to be doing things. And they want their employees, employers to be doing these things and to be part of the solution. And they're proud of them when they are. And again, that doesn't happen just by creating a, you know, the, you know, as I said, the glossy reporter doing a few superficial kinds of things. I've heard you talk about the return on investment for climate and the risk of inaction. Can you define this and explain why it's important? Sure. I think you're referring to a piece I wrote uh, earlier this year called the new ROI for climate, the risk of inaction. And, uh, you know, for a long time, how can we risk the economy or risk our business by investing in these kinds of changes that we're being asked to do to reduce our carbon or environmental footprint? And increasingly, we're seeing that it's, it's actually we're flipping the script on that, that what's the risk of not doing these things? I mean, we learned during the pandemic uh, that, you know, this whole idea of flattening the curve, that the earlier you take action, the, the better your odds of mitigating the, the risks and minimizing the damage. But then we're starting to see, you know, these risks, they can be found at, at pretty much every level, company, community, national, global, and catastrophic damage from extreme weather, the disruption of supply chains, the displacement of workforces, the increased burdens on the already reeling healthcare establishment, you know, and you can measure these in monetary terms as well as just in lives and livelihoods. And so 
we're starting to see, you know, what is, how does this filter down at the company level? What's the risk of inaction? How much more is this going to cost later to harden the targets, if you will, to make sure that we are less susceptible to extreme weather, for example, or the disruptions caused by extreme weather, because that's going to be increasing. So a lot of these things are, are as, as we learned during the pandemic, the, our supply chains are pretty fragile and, and brittle. And, and so, you know, taking earlier action and making sure you're ready for what's coming and it is coming there's no no dispute about that is really what companies need to be doing you know we every year in january around the time of davos the world economic forum big event the world economic forum and marshall mclennan put out an annual global risks report where they and the 17th edition came out in january uh, this year and they asked uh, more than a thousand uh, global experts to rank 37 global risks as their as to their potential to cause significant negative impact over the next decade. And the top ones were all climate related and biodiversity loss, extreme weather. And so these things are coming. And so what is the risk of waiting too long? Yeah, I think this idea of flipping this the script is really um, applicable to the produce industry and to agriculture because we're not only trying to mitigate climate change, but we're also hugely at the effect of climate change. And so I'm already seeing places where it's too hot to grow the way that they were growing, or it's too cold, or the, or the temperature swings are too up and down, or it's too wet, it's too dry, you know. So there really is a lot of changes that that we have to make to be able to continue to grow the way that we grow. You know, people are looking at growing indoors as a way to mitigate that. You know, there's a big issue with water. We're not, you know, especially here in California, you know, we're not going to have the water that we need. So have you looked at that and thought about like with food, how do we work with this where we know climate change is coming? Yeah. I mean, you're right about flipping the script for a long time, certainly when it came to climate change or even things like biodiversity. The question was, was you know, what's the impact of business on the climate? And that's still a question, but increasingly the question is, what's the impact of a changing climate on business? You know, to my earlier point around supply chains, around being able to grow things. And so, yeah, I mean, this whole push towards a regenerative agriculture and, you know, how do you raise, you know, beef in a way that aligns with with being able to improve the soil health and how can that then affect other crops, including, you know, fresh fruit and, and pr other produce and flowers and all of those things, you know, you're starting to understand that there that we have to sort of look at new ways of it's not just a matter of, of conducting business the same way, you know, with climate in mind. In some ways, business is going to have to change the way they do things. Things. And agriculture uh, farmers, at least uh, traditionally, have been stewards of the land. But, you know, over the past 50 or 70 years, you know, really, the inputs have really started to take a toll. And we're one of our biggest national security threats, or global security threats, really, is soil health. And we're just not taking care of, of that. As I say, we're biting the land that feeds us. And uh, th there are agricultural techniques that are well known and established, but sort of had been set aside for years around how do you farm in a way 
that improves, enhances the, the, the soil, and by the way, also sequesters carbon and may create some new revenue streams as there is a, a price on carbon. So those are still, you know, back to my main word here, change. Those things, those changes are hard, but in, they're starting to see movement there where uh, much more mainstream operations or end users, uh, the McDonald's of the world or the Cargill's, not the end users, but the main buyers of these crops and commodities are basically asking, if not demanding, these kinds of changes because they understand that the the continuity of their own business is dependent upon being able to ensure that that we have you know healthy soil and 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 abundant crops despite the changes that are happening in the climate. Driscoll's is the global market leader of fresh strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries. With more than a hundred years of farming heritage, Driscoll's is a pioneer of berry flavor innovation and the trusted consumer brand of only the finest berries. Yeah, I may, I may be a little close to it, so I'd love to hear your perspective of in the industry, we're kind of scrambling and figuring out, okay, what, you know, everybody wants regenerative bag and everybody's talking about like, what does that mean? And, and how do we supply it? And how do we make money doing it? How do we not lose money doing it? And so I'd love to hear some of your thoughts from a, I mean, you have a broader worldview on how people are talking about regenerative ag and what the expectations are. Can you give us a little window into that? Well, first of all, I'm not sure we have clear definitions of what regenerative ag even means. And so it's it's, it's sort of this, you know, this vague term that sounds good and, and probably is good. But what does that mean? And how regenerative is regenerative? I know that's a funny sentence, but those are the kinds of questions that it ultimately gets down to. And then there's also an assumption that you have to flip a switch and, and stop doing this and start doing that. And, and that's, you know, may, may be ideal, maybe actually what's needed to, you know, make change at the level that we need to be making change. But it's not pragmatic from a real world view of companies and supply chains and all of that. So I think what where, where we see encouraging progress or, or is even just with companies that are starting to do some pilot projects and not just how do you work with landowners and smallholders and others in terms of changing their uh, operations, but how do you measure that? How do you measure soil carbon, and how do you measure carbon, you know, soil health, and then looking obviously at the at the at the quantity and quality of the crops, are those better or worse, the same? And so this is a slow, unfortunately, too slow, but transition. But again, I think the the idea that we need to make big changes quickly it can be paralyzing to a lot of companies. And, and so it's, you know, it's easier to just do what you always do, because first of all, you have to be in business. And second of all, it ain't broke, at least right now. And so uh, making those kinds of changes, it, it doesn't have to be in a big way. It, but I think, you know, my two word advice here is just start somewhere. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely true because people, I do see a lot of people get paralyzed just saying, I can't do all that. You know, I can't do all that. And so, you know, a lot of times it's just like pick two things, you know, to do differently and to think about soil health and how you might do something differently. Because as you said, you know, the, a lot of the technology that's been developed over the last century has was good we were able to feed more people and create more calories and but now you know we've kind of 
done a lot of damage along the way. And so what do we need to do to kind of use technology and use information to, to wind that back and start regenerating the soil? It's, it's a huge issue. And I think as we were talking about greenwashing earlier, there's a, a lot of grower groups that feel like, oh, now you're going to put something else on me that I have to lose money on. So that, that's a lot of the conversation is, you know, the risk ends up being taken by the grower, which is not where the risk should live because he or she is not getting the advantage of changing these practices, you know, so there needs to be some sort of way where they don't have to take on all the risk and spend all the money to do practices that really are best for the planet to, to produce food for people. So it's a, it, it's an interesting process. And I think, you know, it isn't a flip of the switch and that's what a lot of people would like to see is just that the switch is we're all regenerative now, but I think it's a, a slow process and just, increasingly using technology and not using technology, you know, to grow more sustainably and, and in a regenerative yeah. way. And you brought up, I think, an interesting point that, that where this stuff happens uh, much more quickly is when it is a partnership, when it is a collaboration between maybe multiple players, uh, sometimes different parts of the value chain. Sometimes it's multiple companies that are that basically share the same suppliers or the same country suppliers. You know, how do we work with a specific country to help their farmers for this crop improve their the sustainability profile? And, and so those these things don't just happen because you ask your supplier to make a change and then they say, well, I don't know, you know, or sorry, no, you're just not, and, and, and there's nothing you can do about it because you're not that big of a buyer. You know, it does require partnerships. Sometimes it requires yeah, third parties who bring f folks together, whether those are public agencies or sometimes environmental groups on the ground, NGOs or trade associations. And that's really how this stuff works. It just doesn't work by issuing new orders. So what role do you think policy and, and regulation plays? Can it play a, a positive role or is it always just make more trouble or how do you see that? No, I mean, policy is important. I mean, we need to set the floor. We need to provide incentives. We need, and those are things that, that, that government can do well. Sometimes we need subsidies, discounted loans or loan guarantees or any number of other things, which the agricultural community is very familiar with. They just may be for the wrong kinds of things, or at least the kinds of things that frankly may be causing some of these problems rather than addressing them. And so, you know, government can absolutely play a role here. What's also fascinating is how much change has taken place in, at least in the United States, in the absence of policy leadership, where, you know, we certainly over the past, you know, let's say five years, there hasn't been the kind of leadership or whether even if when there has been the right kind of leadership, there may be other forces you know, on the lobbying front and, you know, legislative fronts. Again, this could be at the national or the state and local levels that thwart the kinds of changes that need to be made. But what's fascinating, as I said, is how much is this happening? Because this is ultimately about business risk, regulatory risk, financial risk, reputational risk, technology risk, right to operate risk. If you are the largest water user in a water stressed area, you may not be able to uh, do business or if your supplier is, you know, they may not be able to operate. And so, you know, these are increasing risks. And so companies need to be doing these things for risk mitigation purposes and uh, government can help and could accelerate a lot of these things and could could stimulate even more change. But as I said, it's really impressive how much is taking place in, in, despite that. 
Yeah, I was involved in the ethanol and second generation ethanol industry for a while. And you look at that industry and how that was, a lot of that was driven by legislation. And it was just this really, you know, we can talk about how it all ended up. But at the time, you know, a lot of money got put in and a lot of people started paying attention to ethanol. And there was a lot of legislation and it really got people going. And, and we may be getting close to that around carbon, you know, where people are thinking, you know, from a, a risk mitigation and from a legislation point of view is that it might help to put some things in place to, to get people to start developing more technologies and support technologies to be developed to really understand what's going on in the soil, measuring carbon and being able to do something to sequester it. So I think, you know, we may, I'm hoping, you know, we may maybe headed towards some sort of nexus like that where regulation can actually help. Well, I hope it doesn't happen the way that ethanol happened, because that to me was just was too prescriptive and incentivized things. And, and again, I believe that a lot of that was the result of lobbying by certain interests. I think it's better when government can set some broad goals or, or some broad, yeah, broad goals around uh, carbon emissions reduction or maybe soil health or, or, or water use and let the free market figure out how to do that and, and create the incentives, both the carrots and the sticks for doing the right thing and, you know, penalize those who are the cheaters and the laggards and the, you know, who aren't doing it. But I think that the ethanol thing, you know, said, all right, we're all going to march down this direction and here's billions of dollars to, to help, you know, pave the way. And then it turned out to not be the right direction. And I, and I think if, if there had been a broader goal of how do we reduce petroleum use overall, which I think was what the ethanol thing was getting to, and carbon emissions, then there are other ways to do that. And then all of a sudden, there and maybe it's a price on carbon. I'm not an advocate for any particular remedy there because there's lots of them and I'm not a policy geek. But I think that there are a lot of ways you can incentivize the market and, and provide the, the financial stimulus and, again, the regulatory penalties for not hitting in those directions. That's what we need to see. And let, and let technology, let competition, and let all of that uh, soar. We've talked a little bit uh, about supply chain. And one of the things that, that I'm certainly seeing is when large companies like Walmart and McDonald's or Cargill, like you've mentioned before, when they have the market power to say, look, this is what we want from our suppliers and this is what our expectations are. And that that changes everything. Sometimes I feel like they have an awful lot of power, but it also, that's a way without regulation. I mean, that's a, a way to make big changes where they make demands. They need to meet their goals and for them to meet their goals, they need to reach down their supply chain and have the supply chain help them meet those goals. Have you seen some case studies around that of how the larger companies have kind of forced change down the supply chain? Well, you named two of them. And and, and I think, you know, McDonald's and, and Walmart, I mean, and it cuts both ways. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of suppliers to Walmart and even those that are, you know, so deeply engaged with sustainability efforts don't really like the heavy hand that Walmart can have. And Walmart can force, you know, the suppliers to absorb all of the costs of change and, and still deliver the product at the same price or less. And look, Walmart is a hugely positive force in sustainability and the commitments they've made, Project Gigaton in, in particular, are, I think are having a big impact, including in agriculture. You know, some of the, sometimes the big companies have big heavy hammers and, and it's one way of doing it and it may work. And sometimes it does. 
does it. If you're the 900 pound gorilla, you kind of you can kind of call those shots. But there is lots and lots of other smaller, you know, you know, companies that even they're big, but they're nowhere near the size of a McDonald's or a Walmart, who are also working with their suppliers and and may not have the market clout to affect the kind of change. But, you know, there, there's strength in numbers here. When you start to see multiple brands, you know, really lean into this because they're driven by their customers, whether they're in grocery stores or, that, or, or actual shoppers uh, demanding these kinds of things, or whether they're, you know, being revealed under the Klieg lights of disclosure by activist groups or government agencies that, that you know, or investors that are ranking and rating these uh, companies for their unsustainability issues. You know, th there's lots of different ways to affect change. But yeah, I mean, look, supply chains is, first of all, we're Overwhelmingly, for you know, most sectors where anywhere from eighty to ninety-five percent of environmental and and particularly climate impacts lie, and so that is how change happens. You know, you ask your supplier, who asks their supplier, and it can go down, you know, sometimes three or five or more different levels with all the the middleman and and, and aggregators and everything else that takes place. That ultimately is how it has to happen. And again, as we sort of as I was talking about on the government side, are these uh, carrots or sticks? And they're good examples of, of both. So wrapping up, I have one last question for you. If companies in food and produce are interested in being better and creating a more equitable future for themselves through sustainable practices, what are the three actionable steps in doing so? Wow. I mean, I'm going to give you a higher level answer maybe than the one you want. But I think the first thing is to what's your impact? Do you really understand your impacts and, and not just yours, but the impacts as they go down through your supply chain? And even and this is less relevant in the produce sector, but, you know, what happens after you sell something? What are the impacts there? And that could go to food waste and, and some some other issues. But do you understand those things? Because I don't know that most companies do. And, and now that you do, uh, that's one. Number two is, well, what's the plan? Do you have a plan in place? Is it a bold plan, hopefully, uh, that aligns maybe with science-based targets that have been established by independent organizations? Are there specific targets and timetables that you're going to be doing things? And is there uh, disclosure, uh, interim disclosure saying, okay, I have a 2040 or 2050 or even 2030 goal, but what am I doing next year and the year after that? How do I track my progress? And then number three is how are you talking about this stuff, both internally and externally, upstream and downstream to your various communities? And is that aligned with what you're actually doing? Obviously, companies get in trouble when they get too far ahead of their skis on these things. That's where the word greenwashing often comes in. But it's also about aligning actual company policies and strategies and commitments with the uh, with their memberships in organizations, in trade associations, perhaps, but also their lobbying activities, because there's a lot of cases of some of the most proactive companies, the leaders, if you will, in sustainability that are either members of groups that are lobbying against all of uh, everything that I think you and I want to see happen or, or things that we know just need to happen or where um, 
And that's that used to be sort of in back behind the scenes. Now it's becoming uh, much more visible. And it used to be safe for companies to keep you know keep quiet on some of these issues because they were controversial. And now you know being on the sidelines is becoming a less and less safe space. So companies are being asked to you know take a position on some of these things. Are you for a price on carbon or against it? You know what it is? Don't just sit quietly and hope that it sorts itself out. So. What do you know? What are you doing? And what are you saying are the three things that I go? I mean, I could, you know, we could get deeper into some specific things that, you know, companies must be doing, but it really all stems from those three things. Well, I think that's the end of our time. For our listeners out there who would love to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to contact you? Well, first of all, I encourage them to check out greenbiz.com. It's free, daily news, seven different newsletters, including one uh, called Food Weekly, looking at food sustainability issues that's fresh every Wednesday. And in general, you know, on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm, I'm there on LinkedIn. It's just uh, Macauer. We'd love to, to be in touch, and uh, I look forward to hearing from people. As always, love talking to you, and, and thanks for the work that you do and, and your thoughts on this. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Vani. The International Fresh Produce Association is bringing new technology to solve industry's big challenges through the new Fresh Field Catalyst Accelerator. The six-month immersive program works with technology companies outside of produce and floral to experience the challenges in our industry and develop innovative solutions for a healthier world. Applications are due April 4th. Find out more at freshproduce.com. You've been listening to Fresh Takes on Tech, a podcast from the International Fresh Produce Association. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep delivering the latest on produce technology. Thank you for listening. Until next time.